When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Welcome back to the Asian Madness Podcast. Thank you for your continuous support and patronage. Hopefully this year is turning out great for you all, or rather a lot better than the last year. Unless you had a great year last year, then awesome. Keep it up. So today's case is actually quite well known. If you're at least somewhat familiar with Asian cases, specifically Japanese cases, plenty of other true crime podcasts, not Asian-focused, have covered this case. And while I had this one on my list for quite some time, it's finally time to get down to this one. Be warned though, this episode will contain mentions about child death and murder, so I get that it might not be for everyone. So, having kids. It's one of those milestones people celebrate in life. And while it may not be for everyone, most people probably agree that having kids is a great thing. Very difficult, but also very rewarding. Most parents probably want to give their children everything they possibly can, help them navigate through the world, and watch them grow into their own new person. Imagine all the resources, time, and money parents pour into creating a life for their kids. Now, imagine someone thinking none of that matters, and that it is totally okay to take these children away from their parents for good. What kind of monster does that? Apparently, there is no shortage of them. When this happens, who do you picture as the perpetrator? Someone big and strong? Someone tough? An adult? A man? Or maybe, another child? This is the case of the Kobe child murders. Let's begin. Known as one of the most fascinating places in the world, Japan is famous for many things, anime, mouth-watering food, and countless breathtaking sights. These are just some of the things that people usually associate with the country. But arguably, one of the most well-known things about Japan is its exceptionally low crime rate. 
I know I've mentioned this multiple times, but it really doesn't hurt to mention it again. Its gun homicide rate was 0.01 per 100,000 people. America's, on the other hand, was 3.5, 300 times more the rate of Japan's. I know, crazy. Who would have thought? Well, crime isn't high in Japan, it obviously isn't totally non-existent. In fact, the stories that come out of the land of the rising sun often seem as if they were one of Stephen King's disturbing creations. From a mass slaughter of disabled patients at a care facility to the month-long torture of a high school student, Japanese true crime often reads like sickening horror movies. It's almost like go big or go home. I wish mental health issues were looked into a bit more, because that would probably help many people, not just potential perpetrators, but also potential victims. This case takes place in Japan, but more specifically, the city of Kobe, the capital of Hyogo Prefecture. This is the seventh largest city in Japan, located on the north shore of Osaka Bay. Today, it's one of the most visited places in the country, a bustling metropolis with a ton of tourist attractions. Kobe was a much quieter place in the early 1990s. Back then, it was a city struggling to rebuild itself after the January 1995 earthquake, which killed approximately 6,000 and rendered more than 45,000 people homeless. Buildings were toppled, while roads were left with giant cracks and fractures that made them unstable. It took the city quite some time to find its footing again, but by 1997, it seemed well on its way to making a full recovery. People were once again feeling hopeful and excited about the opportunities that the future was sure to bring. In 1997, the city of Kobe was still recovering from this massive earthquake that had devastated it two years prior. But just as people were beginning to get their lives back on track, they were once again sent into a panic frenzy when an unknown assailant started attacking and murdering kids. Despite having hope that things will get better, there will always be people out there who will always want to wreak some type of havoc on others. Selfish, mean, entitled. Call them whatever you like. Or all of the above. Everything began around February of 1997, when two elementary school girls, presumably on their way home from school, were suddenly attacked for no reason. It was around 4.30 p.m. on the busy streets of Kobe. I mean, Kobe isn't a small middle-of-nowhere town, so to do this to two kids in broad daylight is very risky. Regardless, this attacker basically approached the two girls from behind with a hammer and once he was close enough, he began to attack them. It was a short attack, though. He got a few whacks in and immediately escaped the scene of the crime. One of the girls was severely injured and had to be hospitalized. But since neither one of them lost their lives that day, they were able to describe their attacker, though it was quite vague. They said the person who attacked them was wearing a suit-like outfit and also had a student-style book bag. I know it sounds weird. Someone wearing a suit sounds like an adult. And yet they're carrying a student's book bag. That's because a lot of schools, mostly middle schools and upwards, require students to dress properly. And many times the boys were fitted in a suit and tie. Not the kind your dad wears, 
but it's unique to every school, hence a uniform. When the father of one of the girls heard the description, he immediately went to the local middle school and demanded to see photos of all their male students, hoping his daughter would be able to identify the attacker. Sort of understandably, but also not really, the school refused the father's demands. I get it. It's really kind of weird to just present him with your student's information without concrete proof. But at the same time, if someone from the school was really the attacker, wouldn't you, as a school, want to know about it? As a safe community, this sort of incident was completely out of the ordinary and definitely put people on edge, especially the kids and their parents. I personally feel like it was a difficult position for the school. Despite many pleas in getting the police involved, the school still rejected the father. Maybe, just maybe, this was a one-off situation where a wacko lost his mind for a bit and attacked someone vulnerable. That could have been it, but I'm sure people still wanted that said wacko to be caught. How many more times until someone else gets hurt, or worse, killed? No need to wonder for long, apparently. About a month after the first incident on March 16, another young elementary schoolgirl was attacked. A boy older than her had approached her at around 12.25 p.m., asking her for directions to the bathroom. The girl was about 10 years old, Yamashita Ayaka, nice, unsuspecting, and willing to help out a total stranger. She walked the boy to the bathroom, and as she was about to head back, he told her something along the lines of, Hey, I wanted to thank you. She turned towards him, and he immediately took out the hammer he had hidden in his bag, or jacket, and began to attack her, viciously, I might add. Again, the attack did not last long as it was noontime, and it was at school. So he quickly made his escape and left little Ayaka by the bathroom, bleeding and terrified. As the boy was leaving, he spotted another girl in the vicinity. He wasn't sure if she was close enough to have seen everything, but I mean, you can definitely hear and see movements of someone attacking someone. He probably didn't want to leave any witnesses behind, so he made a detour, approached the girl, took out a knife he had in his pocket, and began stabbing her in the stomach. Now back to Ayaka. She was discovered soon after and was taken to the hospital. It seemed like she had lost consciousness due to the heavy blows to her head. She spent days in the hospital with doctors and nurses trying to help her get better. But despite all the effort, she was unable to make it. She passed away on March 27 due to massive brain injuries. Fortunately, the other young girl didn't share Ayaka's fate. Thanks to her doctors, she managed to survive the attack. Traumatized, yes, but alive. Given these disturbing incidents, parents in the neighborhood began to keep a closer eye on their kids, while simultaneously pressuring the authorities to make an arrest. The investigation was hampered by the absence of leads, though, since none of the survivors were able to identify their assailant. They had a rough description, but that wasn't enough. It could be literally any older school kid, or maybe even someone older posing as a student. Around the same time, the mutilated bodies of cats and pigeons began showing up on the streets of Kobe. The police received reports on these, but they were unable to allocate resources to investigate these due to mounting public pressure 
to identify Yamashita Ayaka's murder. They didn't know it at the time, but they would have found the unknown assailant much faster had they also looked into the animal killings. To be fair, though, who would even care to investigate birds and cats dying when you have human children getting hurt left and right? As true crime nerds might be aware, there's a thing called the McDonald's Triad, also known as the Triad of Sociopathy. If someone possesses two out of the three factors, then there's a good chance this individual may have violent tendencies, particularly serial offenses. These three are arson, animal cruelty, and aneurysis, better known as wetting the bed when you're asleep. Okay, what if you're like three and you wet the bed a lot? You're in the clear. This factor strictly refers to children over the ages of five. So technically at that age, where you should be able to control your bladder and not consistently wet the bed. I guess it just never crossed their minds that these could have been connected. The attacks definitely disturbed the residents of Kobe. However, it was about to get much worse. And how much worse, you ask? I would venture to say that this third attack turned out to be even worse than the previous attacks combined. I know, I shouldn't compare tragedies because they're all little kids and one of them even died. What's so fortunate about that? You'll find out. So people were obviously on edge, not knowing who was out there attacking little kids, not knowing if something else might happen. Two months went by, and people seemed to wonder if the attacks were stopping for good. But on the morning of May 27th, 1997, the worst and most violent scene was presented at Tainohata Elementary School. As students and faculty were arriving at the school that morning, a mutilated, decapitated human head sat at the front of the school gates. The head wasn't just decapitated, it had been mutilated as well. Not only were the eyes gouged out, but the mouth had also been slit from ear to ear, giving the face a sickening, permanent smile that appeared to be out of place. Ominous, grotesque, and extremely shocking. The police arrived as fast as possible and quickly sealed the area off. Upon closer look, the head belonged to a young boy, and they immediately wondered if this was the work of the same boy who attacked those girls in the previous months. The victim's name was Hase Jun, a boy who had been missing for the past few days. He was only 11 years old and was in the school's special education program. As if finding a child's head wasn't bad enough, they also found something strange stuffed in the boy's mouth. It was a letter from the killer. Not to be Captain Obvious here, but the note was written in Japanese, so here's a rough translation of what it said. This is the beginning of the game. Try to stop me if you can, you stupid police. I desperately want to see people die. It is a thrill for me to commit murder. A bloody judgment is needed for my years of great bitterness. It was signed in a strange manner. The person wrote, Shul kill, and it is believed that they meant school killer. They spelled it wrong, as they spelled S-H-O-O-L-L and K-I-L-L-E. Not to be rude or anything, but spelling really matters. If you're trying to be threatening, it helps a lot when you write correctly. I know English isn't the main language in Japan, but if you're going to go for it, might as well try to get it right. 
The letter was also signed Sakakibara Seto, and the kanji characters they used basically were Alcohol Demon Rose Saint Warrior. Clearly, this person chose their killer name very carefully, trying to make it sound and look somewhat threatening and edgy. Needless to say, both students and school staff alike were frightened by the sight. After recovering June's head, the police went on to search the nearby area, hoping to find whatever else that may belong to the poor boy. They managed to find the rest of June's mutilated corpse on a hill near the school. The murder of this boy sent the residents of Kobe into a panic frenzy, which was exacerbated when the newspaper, Kobe Shimbun, published a letter that they had allegedly received from the killer. The killer claimed that his name was Sakakibara Seto and said that the murder was his way of taking revenge on the education system in Japan, which was notorious for its strictness, rigidity, and the way the teachers often turn a blind eye to bullying. The letter writer also called children dirty vegetables and included information about the case that authorities hadn't disclosed to the public, which indicated that it wasn't a hoax at all. In the letter, Sakakibara Seto ordered the media to refrain from publishing his name, leading to him being referred to as Onibara in official news reports, which literally means Devil Rose. Apparently, the killer wasn't a fan of his new nickname, Onibara, as it is not what he intended. He wanted his full name, Sakakibara Seto. I know, edgy, angsty teen shit. He also described himself as an invisible man with no nationality whatsoever and tauntingly called on the authorities to identify him, saying, quote, I'm not going so far as to say the police should risk their lives, but pursue me with more anger and determination, unquote. The police started to wonder if this killer was trying to imitate the Zodiac Killer from the 1960s, and were definitely worried the case would end up like the Zodiac case, cold and unsolved. In response to the gruesome murder and the killer's disturbing letter, the local police mobilized more than 500 investigators to work on the case. Meanwhile, parents across Kobe organized neighborhood watches, with volunteers escorting children to and from school. These measures were incredibly jarring to many, since Japan was a country where violent crime was practically unheard of. While the attacks and murders were shocking enough as it was, nothing could have prepared the public for what was about to come next. On June 28, 1997, about a month after June's mutilated head was found at the school entrance, the authorities announced that they had arrested a suspect, a 14-year-old boy, who shortly after confessed to the killings. This kid had already been on the police radar, and despite initially believing that the killer might have been someone older, they eventually began to wonder if they were wrong in their profiling. I get it. No one wants to believe a child is capable of something this horrendous. So the police had looked into various so-called problem teenagers in the area just to cover all their bases. And this one boy stood out to them. They began to conduct an investigation on this boy, taking handwriting samples from his school. And once the girl in the February attack recognized him as her attacker, police immediately knew they had found their guy. Or rather, their kid. Because he was a minor at the time, court documents and police records only referred to him as Boy A. It's quite a common tactic, 
although a lot of people don't really think it's fair. In a sense, yes, they're a minor, and they most likely won't be sentenced as an adult, so technically speaking, they still have the rest of their lives ahead of them. If their true identity were to be revealed, it could cause a lot of problems for their future. But then again, what about their actions? Their victims? If you think you're smart enough and somehow deem it okay to kill, why should your identity be hidden? Where's the justice in that? And most importantly, people would want to know. This isn't necessarily unique to Japan, as there are other cases where minors commit horrible deeds and instead of using their real names, you get a nickname. A good example would be the Richardson murder case in Canada, where the 12 year old daughter, known as JR, partnered up with her pedo lover to kill her entire family. Her identity is now revealed, but that's usually how it goes. The court and the police will try to hide it, but because of amateur sleuths and the internet, these identities still tend to become known. As for Japan, there were two other killings done by kids, one in 2004 and one in 2014. Although independent from each other, both are pretty much known as the Sasebo slashing. The killers were simply known as Girl A. What are your thoughts on this identity secret thing? Like I mentioned earlier, Boy A immediately confessed to his crimes as soon as he was arrested. He was a boy, only 14. I don't think he thought everything through and probably had no idea how to deal with the police. He admitted to all the attacks and to the murders of Ayaka and Jun. He also stated that he had thrown one of his weapons into a nearby reservoir, but took home the other weapons, including a knife and a hammer. The police searched his room and indeed came up with the knife and the hammer, both matching the description of the weapons used on his victims. They also found a couple bonus items a notebook detailing his murderers and twisted thoughts, including Ayaka's murder. Quote, I brought the hammer down when the girl turned to face me. I think I hit her a few times, but I was too excited to remember.、Unquote. When questioned by the police, he admitted that the contents of the diary were real. He also admitted that he had been inspired by the Zodiac Killer and tried to copy his style. So dumb. The police also found a cat tongue that had been preserved in saline solution. Not sure if that works well with preserving tongues, but, well, he tried. A bit I would like to add about Boy A's life. He was the eldest of three boys. He vividly remembers feeling intense emotions when his grandmother's dog passed away when he was in fourth grade. Around the time he began sixth grade, he somehow began to take pleasure in abusing and killing cats, which is a strange turn of events. His diary showed that he killed cats because it brought him pleasure, and this eventually made him wonder what it would be like to kill human beings. So, luckily for the police, they also managed to find the person who had been killing small animals and pets from around the neighborhood. Before going to the trial or getting sentenced, it was important for the court and authorities to figure out what sort of issues this boy had. I know mental health issues isn't exactly something people throw around in Asia, but come on, this is an extreme case, and surely no one healthy and sane in the head would carry out such morbid actions. After some psychological evaluations, a few things came out, some quite obvious. First of all, he was classified as a sadist, which is pretty clear as he has stated multiple times that seeing others in pain 
gives him pleasure. Second, he has antisocial behavioral issues, as in, he is capable of getting along with those around him. It's likely he didn't have many friends, rebelled against his parents and authority, and was not interested in any genuine human connection, but he was somehow able to act like it. Aside from that, he was also a bit too interested in the macabre and grotesque. That itself may not be weird, but it's mostly what you do with it and why you are interested. That can make you weird. He was also found to have extreme sexual fetishes. Let me explain. As for the murder of Hase Jun, the 11-year-old boy, he admitted that he picked Jun because he was younger and smaller. He was also semi-acquainted with the boy, as his younger brother was friends with Jun. Jun's head and body were discovered on May 27, but as we know, he had been missing for a few days already. This is what happened, according to Boy A. On May 24, three days prior to Jun's remains being found, Boy A ran into Jun on the streets. He told Jun that he had found some blue turtles in a nearby area, and asked if he wanted to come check it out. Jun, being trusting and interested, followed Boy A, and once they were alone, Boy A took out a rope and strangled Jun to death. After Jun was dead, he hid the body in the area and went home. The following day, on the 25th, he returned to the scene of the crime and decapitated Jun. Not just that, he also mutilated his face, as I mentioned previously. And one more thing, he masturbated to the boy's head and ejaculated on his face. He also claimed to have drank some of Jun's blood. After doing all that, he returned to the body again the next day, on the 26th, and took the head home to clean it up and mutilate it some more. He claimed he wanted to release the boy's soul by washing it. Not sure that's how souls work, but okay. Boy A then waited around till 1 or 2 a.m., took the head to the elementary school gates, and left it there. Yeah, sick motherfucker for sure. Since the boy was only 14, there was no way he was going to prison or get the death penalty, despite having committed such heinous acts. On October 13, 1997, after getting an extensive evaluation, Boy A was sent to the Canto Juvenile Detention Center for rehabilitation. After four years of therapy and closed monitoring, the authorities believed that he had changed a lot and was doing well, so he was transferred over to the Tohoku Juvenile Detention Center towards the end of 2001. He was reevaluated a year later, but despite making progress, the courts believed that he could benefit with some more therapy and re-education programs. Finally, in March of 2004, he was released on probation. He spent a total of seven years in juvenile detention centers. Do you think this is enough? Do you believe someone who committed crimes at such a young age has a good shot of being rehabilitated? I want to say yes, but knowing what he did, it's definitely hard to have that kind of faith. After his release, Boy A wrote letters to the parents of his murder victims, expressing remorse over his actions. While their contents were never disclosed to the public, Yamashita Ayaka's mother reportedly accepted it, saying that she would consider his apology. Due to Boy A's actions, the Japanese government reevaluated whether or not they should lower the age of criminal responsibility from the original 16 to 14. 
In the year 2000, they made 14 the official age of being criminally responsible. But once the Sasebo killing took place a few years later, they were again asking themselves if 14 was low enough, because the killer in said case, girl A, was only 12. So I'm sure some of you are wondering, did the boy's real identity ever come to light? Why yes, of course. Boy A's real name was actually Azuma Shinichiro. People who knew him described him as a sociable but strange teenager whose hobbies included killing cats so he could add their eyeballs and tongues to his collection. This is not really an acceptable hobby. Why no one felt the need to stop him or report him is beyond me. I guess a lot of people might think, oh, boys will be boys, or he's just being a kid, curious minds. Maybe he will become a doctor or a vet. I don't believe people were able to associate animal killing to human killing, because it really does seem like a huge leap. He also loved reading about Adolf Hitler and serial killers, and his bedroom was filled with books on those topics. Again, being interested in true crime and even Adolf Hitler doesn't necessarily scream murder. It's what you do with it, and also why it fascinates you. I'm fascinated by Hitler in a way because, man, how delusional and how insane is this guy? And how did he manage to do all the shit he's done? As in, he's fascinating, but he's terrible. So Azuma was finally free. And if you were in his shoes, what would you do? Attempt to make amends and move forward with life? Or relive your past some more? In 2015, he wrote and published a memoir called Zekka, rated R talking about his upbringing, his crimes, and his rehabilitation process. I managed to find translated versions of the book online for sale, and many of the websites asked me to sign in to prove that I was an adult. According to sources, his book sold very, very well, and his publishing house made a fortune. None of the families were notified of this book, and no one gave their consent. This obviously outraged the public, but despite many people calling them out on this, lots of others bought the book anyway. In the book, he confessed that he had been a sexual deviant in his youth, also claimed to feel guilty about the killings, saying, quote, I couldn't keep quiet about my past anymore. I had to write. Otherwise, I would go insane. Unquote. His words pissed people off, particularly Hasejun's father, who called for it to be withdrawn from bookstores across Japan. For him, Azuma's memoir proved that he wasn't at all sorry for what he did. It's really quite selfish of him, to be honest. So writing this book was his way to, what, feel better about his past? For crimes that he deliberately committed? And on top of all that, he gets the profit from the book? I can totally understand why Jun's father was repulsed by his actions. Maybe some of the family members of the victims have tried to move forward, but this book being released with all the attention on the killer just seemed unfair. Almost like he's reliving and basking in his past, despite his quote-unquote remorse. How dare he try to relieve his guilt by digging up other people's wounds? On the other hand, Azuma wasn't the only person to write a book. Azuma's parents also wrote a book, roughly translated as Giving Birth to Boy A, A Parent's Regret. The mother of Ayaka, Yamashita Kyoko, also wrote a book titled The Last Power to Live, another rough translation by me. 
Hasejun's father also published a book, once again roughly translated as Confessions of a Victim's Father. People heal and move on in different ways, and this is how they dealt with it. And more power to them. One more thing I wanted to bring up before I end this episode. This might sound crazy to some of you, even crazier than murdering and mutilating kids, is the fact that some people believe that Azuma Shinichiro was falsely accused, and he himself falsely confessed to the crimes. So people in this falsely accused camp include Goto Shojiro, a lawyer who specializes in false accusations, and the former principal of Shinichiro's junior high school. I'm sure they weren't the only ones, but these were the ones who stood out the most. As to why they believed Azuma Shinichiro was innocent, well, the most important piece of evidence would be the fact that one of the murders seemed to have been committed by someone who's left-handed, and yet our dear boy A was right-handed. I don't know, he could have easily panicked and switched hands, maybe tried to grab the victim with his dominant hand instead? Just a theory. They also stated that the confession given by the boy seemed way too elaborate and mature even for an adult. The odds of a child committing the crimes the way he said he did just did not seem likely. Not likely, definitely, but also not impossible. Lastly, they pointed out how boy A had terrible grades in school, and yet his confession seemed very intelligent and mature. Being intelligent doesn't always reflect on your grades and your grades does not necessarily reflect your level of intelligence. I just don't really agree with their reasonings, especially the last two. So, what are your thoughts? I suppose all their concerns and doubts were disregarded, because boy A did confess, and everything he stated seemed to match up with the crimes as well. So there you have it. The heinous murders and attacks done to kids by another kid. I bet most of us do not expect children to have the mental and physical capacity to carry out these crimes. But time and time again, we are proven wrong. Did Boy A, aka Azuma, genuinely feel remorse over the murders that he committed? Or were his apologies and musings nothing but a way to make a quick buck from the innocent lives that he had claimed? The truth will unfortunately remain a mystery. But one thing is for sure. Just because Japan has an admirably low crime rate doesn't mean that people there are 100% safe. It always seems like Japan is generally safe, but when crime does happen, it's a crazy one. What happened to those little kids is tragic and completely unnecessary, and I'm sure to many people it may seem unfair and even dangerous knowing that Azuma is out there living his life. Hopefully we never have to see his name pop up in any news sources ever again. And for the sake of everyone near and around him, I hope he's a changed man. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode. I know it was rather morbid, but facts are facts. Not sensationalizing, but only listing things out to give a better picture. Please stay safe out there. Keep your kids safe. Weirdos are, unfortunately, everywhere. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. 
If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.